0: Well, good morning, you good people, and thank you for joining us for Keeping It Real with James Valiant and me, Robert Nacer, and we are keeping it real. But this week, we're switching track, and we're switching track for a very good reason. See the American flag there on the cover of this fine book? Well, a little bit different on the cover of The Ominous Parallels by Leonard Peikoff, because James, James Valiant has us looking forward to next week. We're celebrating Independence Day in the United States what some people call July 4th, but I never want to forget, well, what is that? Barbecues? What is that? The kickoff summer? Yeah, yeah, and that's all good, but why? Yes, Independence Day. James, thank you for, these are going to be great conversation topics today. How are you doing on this fine Wednesday?
1: I'm doing quite well, sir. I really am. Uh, I understand the weather here in Southern California is a lot better than where you are, uh, so I imagine I'm more comfortable as well.
0: It is. What a curious. It is
1: what a glorious country it is and it isn't the weather that makes it glorious my friends let's explore the wonder the one, the unprecedented achievement that is the United States or at least was the United States <laughs> uh, uh that you know this is our last uh, uh talk before uh independence day the day that a revolutionary day in human history. And I just wanted to take a chance to take Leonard Peikoff's incredible wisdom. There's a chapter in his first book, The Ominous Parallels called The Nation of the Enlightenment. And if anyone ever hasn't read that book, if anyone's unfamiliar with The Ominous Parallels, I urge them to do so. It's not only a devastating critique of how 20th century totalitarianism is itself the product of philosophy, But it is also a glorious defense of America and its philosophical greatness and its philosophical shortcomings uh, as to why uh, America couldn't last as the beacon of liberty that it once was uh, and why it's declining around us today. Uh, But what a nation in its conception, what a nation in the ideas uh, behind it. And you know, The only real defense of these ideas really comes from, today, comes from objectivists. Conservatives like to mouth some kind of uh, nominal defense of the, and it's a perversion of what the Founding Fathers did, in fact. The only ones really on the intellectual map today who properly understand the intellectual basis of America are objectivists. Are objectivists, and so if you think that America was a a glorious uh, uh, revolution in human liberty, and uh, you think that America was a step forward in the progress of human liberty and life on Earth, subject I want to talk about, that I can think of nothing more important than the work we do here at Eynan Center, UK. You guys put in your super chats, hit like, hit share. Do please become. Uh, subscriber to Ayn Rand Center UK. We're the ones defending the ideas of individual liberty and reason today, the real the real carriers of the banner of America's founding fathers. That's us.
0: Absolutely right. We, we are a project, uh, multiple projects, but we are on a, on a mission here at the ARC UK. Anybody listening to this episode, anybody in the chat making your comments, and thank you for joining us, especially anybody putting in Super Chats, contributions, joining the YouTube channel, joining the ARC UK using the link at the top of the chat. You're part of this project too. And what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, James, you've picked four excerpts from that chapter, The Nation of the Enlightenment from the Ominous Parallels. If anybody has not yet read this book or the updated version, The, the Cause of the Rise of Hitler's Germany, it's not just a book about World War II. In fact, it's not primarily a book about World War II. So if you're not that interested in you know, World War II, Nazism, Germany, you might think, no, this isn't, well, we're gonna convince you otherwise this morning. James, the first excerpt you, you picked comes right from the beginning of this section. And I'm quoting Leonard Peikoff from The Ominous Parallels. The development from Aquinas through Locke and Newton represents more than 400 years of stumbling, torturous, prodigious effort to secularize the Western mind, i.e. to liberate man from the medieval shackles. It was built up to a climax, the 18th century, the age of enlightenment. For the first time in modern history, an authentic respect for reason became the mark of an entire culture. The trend that had been implicit in the centuries-long crusade of a handful of innovators, now swept across the West explicitly, reaching and inspiring educated men in every field. Reason, for so long the wave of the future had become the animating force of the present. The desperate battle, it seemed, at the time, had finally been won. Science had won. Ignorance, superstition, and faith, i.e. religion, had lost. The promise of earlier centuries, it seemed, had now been fulfilled. The philosophers and scientists had delivered on that promise, and men were intoxicated not merely by a program and a potential, but by the proven power and actual achievements of man's mind. Unquote Leonard Pegoff in the ominous parallels.
1: Uh, wow. Yeah. First of all, the breathtaking uh, integration that that represents of philosophy and history and the erudition that that, that is my friends, the tip of an iceberg, a research iceberg that goes many, 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 many many, uh, meters down below the sea (laughs) in its depth. Uh, What a profound summary of Western history For so many centuries, classical civilization had fallen and fallen utterly to the hands of mystic authoritarians. We call this period the Dark Ages. It was a period in which blatant platonic, unworldly, mystical ideas had reached a zenith of consistent evil, which we call Christianity. And it is that doctrine, that neoplatonic doctrine of hostility towards life on earth a focus on some supernatural dimension that plunged Western Europe and, that, and all of Europe in, in time into an in, uh, into an age in which this world didn't matter, ambition and success didn't matter. Uh, getting into the next world was what it was all about. Obeying the authority structures set up uh, by this uh, Christian structure was what it was all about. In the 1200s, often called The Magnificent Century, Aristotle finally became legal for Christians to read and study. The secularizing impact of the father of Western science finally was introduced into the intellectual bloodstream, if you will, of the West. And Thomas Aquinas, you know, Aristotle said it was this world, it was observation that must be the basis of knowledge. It is logical analysis alone of that observation that can yield conceptual knowledge, and the restoration of that idea came in paradoxically in several forms. For example, Aquinas's defe- arguments for the existence of God was actually a way of smuggling in Aristotelian logic. Part of his arguments for God were based on observation and Aristotelian logic, and that was getting the camel's nose under the tent, if you will, and it caused, if you will, uh, uh, the achievements of the twelfth century, of the 1200s, the 13th century, were the beginning of the end, and from that moment forward, the rise of humanism and the Renaissance, and a love of this world, and a love of observation, and a change in art, and a change in science, becoming observational science, leading to the experimental method, the revolution in the, in science. Uh, we call it the Renaissance, and then we call it the Age of Reason. And by the 1700s, by the 18th century, the achievements of science and the achievements of philosophy were unmistakable. The power of reason was now becoming understood as a reality, as a reality. And this can be seen maybe best in the achievements of two men, two Englishmen, one Isaac Newton, who integrated the achievements of a dozen scientists who'd come before him. He said he stood on the shoulders of giants, but he himself was at least their equal and a giant who could put that together and see even further. And the power of the human mind to understand the physical world in which we lived took an exalted step with the observational science, the master integration in physics that that Isaac Newton represents. Similarly in politics, Aristotelian philosophy. There was a philosopher named John Locke. He had philosophical mistakes, all kinds of philosophical mistakes, but he was the most Aristotelian of all the philosophers of the era. He said, all knowledge begins and arises out of sense perception. He he was looking to human nature, to human nature, to develop in an Aristotelian, basically an Aristotelian way, the first doctrine of individual rights, individual liberty, arguments against slavery, arguments for private property. And these arguments were the philosophical celebration of what life on earth could be. No longer was it focused on this heaven, this supernatural dimension, even though Locke and Newton were both Christians, weird Christians in their way, (laughs) funky Christians that could only be in in their unique time. But the point is that they had given... New confidence to reason in its ability to reshape the world, the power of reason. And throughout that century, the defenders of these ideas really ruled the day, really ruled the day. And what most people don't realize is that America represents the culmination of that anti-Christian, anti-Platonic movement that had begun in the 1200s had developed through the Renaissance, the age of science, and had reached this climactic moment in the Enlightenment, America is the quintessential product of that intellectual movement, an anti-religious movement, an anti-Christian movement, an anti-Platonic movement. Which cult- There were two times, really, in the history of Western civilization where a culture was really reason-focused, and this worldly-focused, ancient Greece, and the Enlightenment, um, and the Enlightenment in some ways having the advantage of looking back on the ancient Greek Greeks had take them, taken them a step further in the realm of politics, had taken them a step further in the realm of politics. And that is what America represents, ladies and gentlemen, the climax of the greatest achievement in the history of Western civilization.
0: Outstanding. Let me read excerpt number two of the four that we're going to read today, and then I'll have a couple things to say about that as well. But Leonard Peikoff in The Ominous Parallels writes, almost without exception, the countries of the world owe their origins to non-ideological factors, to the accidents of war. Sorry, a super chat came in. I forgot. I, I really meant to say thank you to Bonnie Bertrand. Early super chat. Thank you very much for that. And another one just came in from Buster Jones. Thank you for that as well. He says, it's pretty eye opening to observe the consequences of a nation embracing Christ and one that now tries to mimic Christ despite its implicit message. I appreciate that comment, but I'm going to have a few things to say about that. James, I suspect you will too. Let me get back to that second excerpt, but I wanted to, uh, Jeff Bannister's in with the Super Chat as well. Thank you for that, Jeff. I really want to call out the folks who are contributing, especially this week, uh, a week when we may not have as many programs. Next week, we may not have as much going on because of Ocon, and then we're going to spring right back. We've got so much going on in the ARC UK. It's really exciting. Uh, everybody, of course, knows the, the Daily Collective is coming up next month other programming changes and and things coming up, your support is making things possible you don't even know. But everything that we already do as well, sorry about that, but I really wanted to give a shout out to uh, Jeff and Buster and Catherine. Catherine is in with a super chat as well. Thank you for that as well. Again, both of them just contributing, no question there. So Bonnie, Buster, Catherine, Jeff, thank you. Let me get back to number two because I really, and I know you too, too, James, have a lot to say. Number two, again, start over again, quote, Almost without exception, the countries of the world owe their origins to non-ideological factors, to the accidents of war, the meaningless warfare of clashing tribes, or of geography, language, custom, etc. The United States is the first nation in history to be created on the basis of ideas. Its founding fathers were not tribal chiefs or power-lusting conquerors or a revelation-encrusted priesthood, they were thinkers, thinkers of the Enlightenment, educated, articulate, thoroughly imbued with the ideas of the period. Jeered at by traditionalists, on both sides of the Atlantic, these men proposed to create a nation whose institutions would be without precedent, and to do it on the basis of a theory an abstract theory of the nature of man and of the universe the united states they decided would be the first country in history to stand for something it would be the first nation to have an avowed philosophical meaning unquote leonard peakoff now james i know you have a lot to say but i've, I've got to get this in the first thing i think is well england We talk about Greece as the cradle of civilization. England was the standard bearer of civilization, the civilizing influence around the world, the greatest country up to that point. And yet for all of their great thinkers and and Adam Smith from neighboring Scotland, for all of the great thinkers that you had in England and the great scientists, the the, uh, Newtons, for example, they did not let go of their idea of authoritarianism arising from tradition and religion. They had the ideas in some of their greatest thinkers, but they were so entrenched in the ideas of the past that as magnificent as England was, it could not be what America, how is it America is only less than 300 years old and is the greatest benefactor to the world in terms of both production and innovation, the highest GDP in the world. It's, There's only one explanation for that, and it's exactly what Dr. Peekoff is talking about. The ideas on which this country was founded.
1: Britain, you know, know, it's an amazing thing. You can track the development of British law and constitutional law in particular. I know they have an unwritten constitution, unlike America. But the development of the Constitution of England from the 1200s, when the Magna Carta was signed, forward forward is an astonishing development, one that could only have happened in the post-Aquinas world of reason. But the development of British common law, the development of the British parliament, the development of the British jury system, yes, indeed made England the cradle of liberty in many fundamental respects. They pioneered representative democracy. They pioneered these ideas. They pioneered capitalism in important ways, a due process and a respect for property rights. In the late 16th century, Queen Elizabeth eliminated government monopolies. For you know, industry, if you wanted to open up a business back in the 1500s, you had to get the government's permission. You had to get a special license, which was a, li- a monopoly license, which gave you the exclusive right to engage in that business in that certain area. These were monopolies, royal government granted monopolies, which had dominated the economy of the world until that point. Uh, England, for example, under Elizabeth, started systematically eliminating these state licensed monopolies, opening up private business and the ability for private businesses to compete with one another. She also helped establish a system of fair and uniform justice so that in fact, business people could predict outcomes and could basically rely on a government that would usually protect their property rights and contracts. Over the course of the next century or two, this led to a revolution in Great Britain. Climax occurred in 1688 with the Glorious Revolution and the removal of the, the last Catholic Stuart King and the Bill of Rights, the English Bill of Rights, the first assertion of rights of British citizens This was a revolution and the justification of that was in fact, John Locke's two treatises of government in which he justifies individual rights more than any other single philosopher. And now mind you, this is cutting edge philosophy for the time. I mean, if we were to transpose it into our time it would be the cutting, now as horrific as the cutting edge ideas of philosophy are at our time you can imagine the nightmare opposite that our intellectuals would produce today. But take yourself in a time machine back two or 300 years and you realize, no, it's a whole different culture. The cutting edge philosophical ideas are all about individual liberty, all about the rights of man, all about constraining government, which they now understood to be the source of the violation of these rights, the source of tyranny, these absolute monarchs, this institution of slavery. And it was these cutting edge ideas. And even in the realm of political science itself, the idea of separation of powers by a Frenchman by the name of Montesquieu. How do we limit government power? Well, we can constrain government by separating judicial, executive, and legislative functions. These are the ideas that America's founding fathers implemented in practice. The cutting edge intellectual ideas of the most secular thinkers of the time, some of the most brilliant minds of the Enlightenment, were being incorporated intentionally in a scientifically created government for the first time in human history. History, what Leonard says here is absolutely correct. Some accident of migration, some accident of war, some mountain chain that couldn't be crossed, some linguistic similarity that developed over time. These are some religious, and this often was the the case, a religious association, one group for another, caused these segregations into religious tribes. And it is that tribalism that dominated the creation of nations since the dawn of time. America was going to be developed on the basis of ideas, philosophical ideas about the nature, human nature. That's what it was about for Locke. And Locke was the single greatest influence on the founding fathers. If you read the Declaration of Independence, If you read the Federalist Papers, if you read the correspondence of the Founding Fathers, you realize these were the animating ideas that actually they were the cutting edge, well-educated English lawyers who were well-read men who knew the cutting edge philosophical ideas of their time and were implementing them (laughs) in what is a remarkably secular revolution. Every government before that had had some kind of mystical justification. Our king is divinely appointed by our gods or our god. Some official state religion had dominated the governments of every government until that point. America said no established religion of any kind, an absolute revolution in the history of world government. It was a radically secularizing idea. It was an idea that based on the belief that reason can change the world for the better, that reason is the way we fix the world. This power and confidence in reason is the huge animating part of it. Uh, And that cannot be uh, understated. The confidence in reason, the power of reason that the age of science and the enlightenment had given these people, what Newton and Locke had done in terms of giving them the confidence to boldly enact in reality the uh, these cutting-edge ideas. That's what America is all about.
0: Outstanding. I'm watching the chat, and we've got some folks who came in early, or excuse me, came in late, but I've got to give a shout-out to uh, unsigned 32-bit individualist, because that's somebody we know personally here in Michigan, and Apollo Zeus is also in the chat. And the reason I mention our good friend in Michigan, is because as we have this conversation, uh, I think about the the exhibits you can find around the country. Sometimes it feels like there's not as much respect for the country for the founding as there was. I want to give a huge shout out to the folks at the uh, Henry Ford, the Henry Ford Museum of, of American Innovation in Greenfield Village. There's an exhibit there called "And Liberty and for, End Liberty and Justice for All, where you can actually look at not just the founding documents, but Some of the work that was done, some of the edits, some of the strife we could have been saved if the provisions against slavery had been included instead of being edited out. So much good content out there. If you're anywhere near Independence Hall, if you're in Pennsylvania, if you're around the country, you can find these exhibits. And it's it's heartening to think about as I travel, I see that there is this respect. And it's not just from the right, from conservatives. In fact, I want to go to the third excerpt here. And we're going to make a point that's a little bit uh, bold, but absolutely has to be said. Leonard Peikoff writes, in The Ominous Parallels, it has been said, mostly by illiterates and conservatives.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Full stop there. I have to pause. I I can never read that line without giggling aloud.
0: You know, I read this aloud last night just to make sure I wouldn't stumble over any phrases. <laughs> and, uh, I found myself in my head, you know, just sticking in that quip. But I repeat myself. But let me start from the beginning. I shouldn't. I shouldn't say that. I have so many good conservative friends. Again, here we're, we're talking about the ideological. <laughs> yeah, we're talking about the movement here. But again, quoting Leonard Peikoff from the ominous parallels. It has been said, mostly by illiterates and conservatives, that the belief in God is at the base of the American system, and that the United States is a product of Christian piety. In fact, the religious mentality was not the source of this country's distinctive institutions, but the fundamental obstacle to their emergence. So long as men took the idea of God Seriously, the idea of America, the America conceived by the founding fathers, was not possible. Unquote. Now there's a bold statement, and I think absolutely right.
1: Let's take one little phrase from the Declaration of Independence, just to show how absolutely correct Leonard Peikoff is here. The Declaration of Independence famously and boldly asserted that all men have the equal right to pursue their happiness. Now, this flies in the face of every mystical idea since the dawn of mystical philosophy. <laughs> Plato, for example, let's go back to the ancient world and Plato compared to later Christians was an earthly hedonist, <laughs> but let's go back to Plato. He said, no, 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 no. To get real happiness, to, get re- to really get plugged into stuff, you have to be an ascetic. You have to turn away from earthly pleasures. You have to turn away from the material world and get your mind, your focus on purely abstract intellectual things that belong to a supernatural dimension of forms, to a supernatural dimension of forms. And so he recommended asceticism. He recommended uh, deprivation of the body. He he recommended that you not pursue earthly uh, physical pleasures. And that's built into sort of his mystical worldview. He did not. Now, now, all those Greeks were comparatively egoists compared to what's going to happen, what's going to happen. But notice here, this uh, very idea of a supernatural dimension, disses life on Earth here. Even in Plato, he's, he's talking about giving up the earthly, giving up, surrendering the physical world this world in effect for the next. And that's gonna require some asceticism on your part to get in touch with this mystical world. And because this mystical world can only be known by those with higher mentalities, we have to turn over our governing political authority over to these philosopher kings who know better because they're in mystic contact with this world of forms that the rest of us, you know, ordinary little little plebs can never really get in uh, contact with. Well, this notion was taken up at with... Uh, evil relish by the later Christian philosophers, and they developed it in an even more disgustingly anti-worldly way that made happiness and the pursuit of happiness an outright sin in just about any form you can imagine in any form you can imagine. Don't worry about what you wear. Don't worry about what you eat. Don't worry about working here. on the. Look at the lilies of the field, they don't toil. Uh, put your mind on the kingdom of heaven. Uh, don't gather up your treasures here on earth where they can decay. Gather your treasures up in this supernatural dimension, the kingdom of heaven. Pick up your own cross and follow Jesus. Be willing to sacrifice your life here on earth altogether. Be a celibate, give up all your money, Misery here on earth, a blessed are the poor. You're lucky if you're poor, said Jesus. A miserable life on earth is actually a salvation opportunity. You can read in the New Testament that slavery is defended. Slavery, no, there's no individual right doctrine. you'll ever find in the, in the uh, Bible either the Hebrew or the Christian Greek Bible, no doctrine of individual rights, no idea of representative democracy. <laughs> nothing like that. But what you will find, obey the government, as God's appointed agents on earth. which you will find there are attacks on life on earth, happiness on earth, sex, money, you name it. Uh, working, actually trying to improve your life here on earth is specifically attacked. This assault on happiness, this assault on the individual's happiness here on earth was the dominant force for centuries, the dominant force for centuries. If Can you imagine the revolutionary idea that says, wait a minute here, folks, it's not getting into the kingdom of heaven. It's not sacrificing for everyone else. It's not sacrificing this life here on earth. The whole point of this exercise for the founding fathers was happiness here on earth and the equal opportunity for every individual to have a chance at happiness here on earth. Their political system is gonna be designed around individual rights and a representative system of government, precisely because they believed that was the way to maximize people's chances for happiness on earth. They realized that liberty, individual rights, was the social condition which will give every person equally a shot at pursuing their own happiness. That is an egoistic, earthly justification that flies in the face of every platonic and every Christian idea that had Been before that time. It was a refutation of all the priests and kings that had ever existed before it. And the founding fathers understood it at that level.
0: I I couldn't agree more. And if anybody needs a stronger case for that, I mean, just imagine a, a society based on religion or the union of religion and tradition. How would they defend? Uh, individual rights—that that's ridiculous. How would they defend life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? Obviously, that's that's uh, that just doesn't fit. That's completely new. Even the idea of the consent of the governed considered in a religious context. Now, I'm stealing chapter titles. I'm actually stealing chapter titles from this book, which I think we can heartily recommend from Brad Thompson. C. Bradley Thompson, America's Revolutionary Mind a moral history of the American Revolution and the Declaration that defined it. I I don't think you can find better research all compiled into one edition than this outstanding book. If you don't have it already, it belongs on your bookshelf and it needs to be read. You're right. These ideas all clash, all clash with religion as well as tradition and other forms of authoritarianism from which a country like England could not fully extricate itself as magnificent as England, we have enormous respect for our UK brothers, but the reason why the United States was able to transcend even the success of the British Empire is the ideas. This was not an accident of history. And, and it's not because the United States had more resources or more people. We certainly didn't have that. It still amazes me that, that China for all of the magnificent ways in which for a brief time they started embracing capitalism recently, that of course has taken a dip for the worst in the last 10 years. They have four times the primary resource, the human resource, and yet they've only recently caught up to our GDP numbers at one fourth of the population. And now I'm so happy to see that India has now taken over as the population center of the world, despite the fact that I think they're a bit overcrowded for their country. I can see why their GDP is coming up. I think they're gonna be the big up and comer in terms of progress. I think they have a better chance despite their authoritarian government of transcending China precisely because they're not explicitly communist. Neither one of them can touch what the ideas of freedom, of liberty, of independence, of the sovereignty of the individual have made possible in the United States.
1: Well, the reality that it became, that America became, this idea that every individual has the right to pursue his or her own happiness had an astonishing effect. It led to a nation of open material selfishness. That promise of selfishness was realized. Think of it Jesus said uh, uh, to the rich young man, Give away all your money to the poor. Jesus said, uh, uh you can't serve two uh, masters mammon and, and god store your kingdom your treasures in the kingdom of heaven uh saint paul said the love of money is the root of all manners of evil um and here we had a country that praised and practically hero worshiped for a time the people who could make individual fortunes the pursuit of material wealth the pursuit of material comfort uh it was a revolution. America. Cre- it was the, going to be the land that produced washing machines, microwave ovens, smartphones. And you think about it, nothing could be more anti-Christian. Nothing could be more anti-Platonic. Nothing could be more anti kantian And we'll get to that in a sec. But the point is that what America had re- re- released was a love of this earth. A belief that happiness here on Earth was possible. Make the most. You can improve your life here on Earth. Make your life better. And that idea that everyone had a right to do that created more well-being, created more material prosperity than had ever been seen in the history of mankind. Uh, The actual consequences of a worship of life on Earth, this de-emphasizing of the focus on the supernatural altogether was the most glorious part of not only the theoretical beginning of America, but its initial practical revolution. All the wonderful, glorious things that America has been in the last 200 years have basically been the direct product of a this-worldly, pro-reason, pro-egoism idea that implicitly under undergirded all of America. And it is for America's material prosperity. It's for that selfishness that it's generally ridiculed and attacked across the world, whether it's the Catholic Church or our Marxist friends.
0: <clears throat> oh, yeah. friends
1: very generously, yes. <laughs> it's,
0: it's, it's amazing to look at the reality. Just look at the Freedom Index. And in the United States on the Economic Freedom Index isn't even the number one country in the world, but see how that index matches up to the productiveness and the prosperity and other well-being numbers. And then you're right. Our Marxist friends come along and say, America, you're the opposite of the ideal. Yeah, well, tell me how that's working out for you. Speaking of the respect for private property and especially money, I want to give a shout out to Apollo Zeus, who was in with a super chat for a couple of pounds. Very much appreciated. Thank you for that. And um just monitoring the chat. Bonnie says YouTube's cutting out on her, might be an issue on your end. Looks pretty good from here, although I can't monitor the audio at the same time. And we do have a super chat with a question. And and James, you'll know the answer to this better than I will because I don't I, I only know it in, in in pattern. Catherine is in with a super chat. Thank you for that. And she asks, Why do we have in God we trust? on our money. Now, the only thing I know is it wasn't always there, and it was a surprisingly modern addition. You would think, you know, well, it would go back to old traditions. No, some fools brought that back. James, what do you know about that?
1: Well, the whole thing is basically, uh, alas, well, the Founding Fathers, one of the great secularizing things that they did is in the First Amendment to the Bill of Rights, it begins with with the following statement, no establishment of religion. The United States government cannot take a stand on religion, cannot support a religion, cannot encourage a particular religion, uh, and free exercise. So the idea was a radically secularizing idea. Men, whether they were Federalists like uh, like John Adams or Anti-Federalists like uh, Thomas Jefferson, were of the belief that America was distinctly not a Christian nation. Distinctly not a Christian nation. Now... American democracy has, uh, unfortunately, had to yield to the growth of mysticism over the last 200 years. And we can get to that when we discuss Kant and the counter-Enlightenment revolution that America has had to endure for over 200 years now and fight back the primordial forces of neo-mysticism that this German philosopher named Immanuel Kant unleashed on the intellectual life of uh, Western civilization. Uh, and in the process of that, he unleashed a neo-mysticism. And that of course has resulted in ever increasing mystical ideas within the American population. Uh, in, for example, let's go through some of these things. Uh, the first pledge of allegiance to America's flag had no under God in it. The first pledge of allegiance was developed after the civil war because of uh, Lincoln's notion of unity, one nation indivisible was the idea, and it was a loyalty oath developed in effect during a civil war. But even that didn't have the notion of God in it. There's no mention of God in the American constitution, not one, not one. Uh, so the the idea that God was somehow part of the founding is antithetical to this. No, no, it was only in the 20th century when religious uh, constituencies began to really gain uh, momentum that this even got on the map most particularly in the 1950s. The, uh, for example, the Pledge of Allegiance added under God. Why? Because it was those evil atheistic communists we were fighting during the Cold War, and American conservatives wanted to get that in. Uh, the original motto of the United States, getting to In God We Trust, was uh, came from the Roman Republic, the pagan pre-Christian Roman Republic. E pluribus unum in Latin, from one many, or from many one. Excuse me, got that almost backwards. And the same is true with In God We Trust. That only was developed as America's motto generations after that, and substituted, unfortunately, a far more secular and pagan motto. E pluribus unum was completely uh, supplanted, in effect, by In God We Trust as religious constituencies grew over the last 200 years in America. There were great religious revivals in America in the 1800s and neo-mystic revivals philosophically based in the 20th century. And under this onslaught of mysticism, America has has more and more and more lost its secular I'll go so far as to say anti-religious basis, and our conservative friends have never grasped this point. They, with their belief that somehow God is the only basis for any kind of morality, of course, it is just, it is worse than anything else. God is the basis for dictatorship. The authority of God serves as the model for all authoritarianism and dictatorship thereafter, Uh, So they've got it exactly backwards. And of course, mysticism is an anti-reason thing. You'll never justify, based on reason, reality, and any kind of earthly uh, approach to this, individual rights. It cannot be. It cannot be. The two ideas are in war and in conflict, and the that's what makes an. You know, we could say to ourselves, "Gee, our progressive friends really hate the ideas of individual rights, and they want to get rid of the Constitution altogether." And that's true. The only ones who even give lip service to the Constitution are are conservatives. But who's more dangerous? The conservatives who are perverting the idea. We're turning it upside down, inside out, on its head, so that most Americans wouldn't even recognize the actual attitudes of the Founding Fathers? Or is it these people who frankly say, well, we're opposed to them? I say the conservatives, in a fundamental way, are far more dangerous because they're getting people to forget, in fact, get a wrong idea of what the framers were all about. They were cutting edge scientists, men like Ben Franklin and Thomas Jefferson. They were inventors. They were well, well-read educated men. They were scientists. They were in touch with the great scientists of the time, men like Joseph Priestley and so forth. Franklin, when he went to England, met Adam Smith and even David Hume, the leading English philosopher of the time, Scottish philosopher. <laughs> he was these people were plugged into the cutting edge ideas of the time. But the cutting edge of the ideas of the time were radically secular, were overwhelmed with the confidence of reason and the power of reason. Um, it was an anti, and I'm going to go this far, uh, Leonard is right in that quote, the traditional idea of God would have made America impossible, a religious worldview, would have, made religion, would have made America impossible. It is inconceivable to me that your typical mystic in any previous era would have ever said that each of us has a right to pursue our own happiness here on earth.
0: Exactly right. Um, uh, first, let me give a shout out because we've got a big super chat in, very generous from Richard Cameron, the, the great guitar player, Ricky Cameron. Thank you for that. He says, thanks for the great talk. <clears throat> Thank you very much for that super chat. And that I appreciate the compliment as well. You know, there, there's an old joke. Um, when people uh, you know, who have dogs know how their dogs chase cars. And, uh, and they ask, well, what's the dog going to do with that car if he ever catches it? <laughs> I, always, I always think when people tell me, Robert, you've got to get behind the right. You've got to get behind today's conservatives because they're the only ones who can defeat the left. And the first thing I wonder is, what are they going to do if they ever win? <laughs> what are we left with? If today's conservatives win, but my biggest gripe against the conservatives isn't even that. It's it's that they're in the way. They stand in the way of fighting the left. They are they. The only reason the left is winning is because they are the worst possible opposition to it. And unfortunately, the folks who make this argument keep making it, no matter how much they fail on the right. No matter how, then they just say, well, because the left what owns all the institutions. Why do they own all the institutions? Because what the right offers is the opposite of what is needed. Uh, I won't argue which is more dangerous because you can stack up all the evidence and say, yeah, the left is a 10 and the right is only a seven in danger, but the right is in the way. So they are responsible for the 17, for both of the problems. Without getting too much into that, because I'm going to try to keep it a little bit positive here, because, James, you, you've got such a positive. Uh, and we need to get back to the essentials. It's not just it's, it's not about, you know, Ron DeSantis speaking of Ocon coming up or about Donald Trump or about any of the people that we could complain about. The people and and w- much worse than any of those politicians, today's conservative intellectuals. You know, uh, Brad Thompson got so much support when that book came out. Uh, intelligent people like like George Will, for example, wrote great commentaries on the book. But he also got thrashed by many of today's conservative intellectuals. Oh, the problem today is precisely self-interest. Uh, that's what the left's about, those, those selfish hedonists. And no, we on the right, we're about duty. And in so many other ways. Let me read the fourth excerpt, the final excerpt, and we're going to have more to say about this. We're not done, but the fourth excerpt here, and this is how Dr. Pico wraps up this chapter, quote, the founding fathers did not know that the era in which they lived and fought and planned was on the threshold of yielding to its antipode. They did not know that they had snatched a country from the jaws of history at the last possible moment. They did not know that even as they struggled to bring a new nation into existence, its philosophical gravediggers were already at work cashing in on the period's contradictions. In the very decade in which the Founding Fathers were publishing their momentous documents, Kant was publishing his, of course, that's the, uh, unquote, the critique of pure reason. Um, Oh, excuse me. I put an extra quotation mark here. Let me finish this quote. Symbolically, this is America's philosophical conflict. Running through all the years of its subsequent history, the conflict is, The Declaration of Independence with everything that it presupposes against the critique of pure reason with everything to which it leads. Unquote.
1: Uh, You know, people are going to say, how absurd. You know, some people can say, why can't some German philosopher, Immanuel Kant, he's the enemy of America and everything America stood for, he's the enemy of the Enlightenment. Uh, people are going to say, wait a minute, he was uh, this quintessential uh, Enlightenment thinker. In fact, if you look at his politics, he was, like most of the thinkers of his, uh, intellectual thinkers of his time, pro-liberty and, and w- w- what you might call in some ways a liberal in his politics. But I want to go back to two of the ideas that we discussed earlier. Yes, One was the confidence in the power of reason. The, the development of humanism, the Renaissance, the Age of Science, the Enlightenment, the power of John Locke and Isaac Newton, what that had done is given the Western mind a confidence, a certainty, reason is our way of knowing, and reason can know. Look at all the things that we're discovering in science and philosophy, and look at all what we're discovering. Economics was coming into being. We mentioned Adam Smith. Reason was sweeping the day, and the power of reason was understood. And it was that confidence in reason, in nature, you see, and in our rational capacity. that so, uh, Thomas Jefferson, Fix reason firmly in her seat and call her to, tri- to her tribunal every fact, every opinion, including the existence of God. Thomas Jefferson did a Greek, he was a scholar, you know, he had a Greek translation of the New Testament. He cut out all the miracles because <laughs> he didn't believe any of that mystic nonsense. That was a, the author of the Declaration of Independence. It's this confidence in reason that Kant destroyed. That Kant destroyed. You can't know reality. Reason is just an illusion. In the field of epistemology, he did more than anyone, anyone, to undermine this confidence and reason that so characterized the Enlightenment. The very confidence that, made America, po- that made America possible, this confidence in reason, Manuel Kant, more than anyone, destroyed that, the single most important premise that made America possible. Now let's go to ethics this pursuit of happiness thing that I talked about. Well, that was the exact opposite of Kant's ethics. Kant said, that consequences have nothing to do with ethics. You have to do your duty based on some abstract reasoning about some categorical imperative and whatever the consequences in this world, whatever the consequences to your happiness, you have to do your duty. Ethics is not about getting happiness here on earth, my friends. It was a defense in that sense of the religious worldview of a religious approach to ethics. And so Kant, destroys the very concepts behind the Declaration of Independence, like no other philosopher in history. He set off a philosophical revolution that would result in Hegel and his ab defense of horrific government. Yeah, so the liberal politics was all just really a front. When you really buy into this German philosophy, what it's going to result in is Hegel, and it's going to result in Marx, and it's going to finally result in Nazism. No to undermine the idea that happiness on earth is what ethics is all about. Life here on earth, or to undermine our confidence in reason and the power of reason to reshape the world. Those are the important philosophical premises that made America and all of its success and all of the material and spiritual joy that America has made possible over the last 250 years is predicated on the ideas of the Enlightenment and most fundamentally opposed to the ideas that Immanuel Kant in basic philosophy put forth. Immanuel Kant is the one, as Peakoff argues elsewhere in that book, who will lead to 20th century totalitarianism. And that, my friends, is simply the fact reason and egoism, individualism, must underlie the philosophical basis of any kind of happiness of, on life on earth, any kind of justification for individual liberty. And so a lot of people will say, how does this You know, quiet philosopher from Königsberg, uh, Germany, uh, who only wrote books, how is he the guy that destroyed everything that America stood for? I would point to those two things. He undermined the West's confidence in reason, and he told us that the pursuit of your individual happiness is not what ethics is about, quite the opposite, has nothing to do with consequences like happiness. You just do your duty, Robert. And that, of course, is a justification for every form of dictatorship and slavery you can imagine. Um, so, yeah, uh,
0: yeah. yeah. I, was I, gonna just, say, I was just going to say, I, 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 know. It. <laughs> I know people who say, well, people who have never read the founding documents but they understand the principles behind them. And at least on some level, they understand how respect for individual rights, respect, which means ultimately respect for the individual judgment of of actual people has led to American prosperity. The same people will tell me, but nobody reads Immanuel Kant. Well, you've never read the founding documents either. All (laughs) it took was for the most influential philosopher of the time to write the critique of pure reason. Is an and he did. We're not taking this simplistically. Critique doesn't mean he was critiquing the faculty of reason. To him, he was simply explaining it, the faculty of reason. Just like the critique of practical reason is his. He's not critiquing ethics. He's explaining it, but he's giving the wrong, the ultimately a vicious explanation of it. Just like his critique of judgment. His critique of teleology, again, it's not a critique. It's his explanation, but it's the wrong explanation. When you get political ideas wrong, you get a nation in decline. Well, when you get philosophical ideas wrong, as Kant did, it doesn't matter that most people have never read Kant. Hell, I would be impressed if anybody can get through the critiques. (laughs) It's not that...
1: It's Fichte, the father of socialism. Hegel, yes. the father of modern dictatorship. Well, he did <laughs> it. It he read their Kant. And guess what? Karl Marx read his Hegel. And guess what? We have a chain reaction like that. And to understand the each link in that chain, again, the ominous parallels is your go-to best source on that. That entire chain from Immanuel Kant to, to, to 20th century totalitarianism. And the decline, mind you, Uh, in even Great Britain and the United States of what liberty we have enjoyed to the benevolent impact on humanity, the unprecedented benevolent impact on humanity that has been liberty, the rule of law and the industrial and scientific revolutions that came in their wake. Even that has been undermined terribly in the last more than a century because of the, the corrosive effects of these German philosophers, mostly German philosophers, uh, for, uh, who led to to 20th century totalitarianism. They read their Kant. They read their Hegel. Hegel read his Kant. Marx read his Hegel. No, you may not be aware of these guys, but these guys were the architects of all of the neo mysticism and all of the neo of all the dictatorships of the last 150 years. What could have happened to a Western civilization that had reached the enlightenment, that had reached such a confidence in the power of reason and the importance of individual happiness and life on earth. What happened? What
0: happened? Yes. And when I look at the prosperity around us and how great the United States still is, even to this day, it makes me think, well, but we saw that in philosophy. How much greater would uh, you know, James or or even uh, Nietzsche have been without German transcendentalism in the atmosphere, just like how much greater would the United States be today without the corrupting influence of modern philosophy? Where should we be? Where would we be?
1: I have nothing to say, sir. That was brilliant.
0: <laughs> so uh, not to end on that sour note, but we need <laughs> that. We need that explanation in order to fully respect what was made possible by you know, America's revolutionary mind, our founding fathers, the ideas of, uh, again, both the the great British thinkers who brought us up to that point,
1: and but, you, know, you know, there have been so many good, there have been many good books on the American Revolution. I think of Bernard Bailyn. I think of several other uh, historians of ideas who really understood where America came from, Enlightenment ideas. Um, um, the Enlightenment America is a good book, but all of them, in my view, have been eclipsed by Brad Thompson's book. If you want to understand the origins of America, that is the go-to book, ladies and gentlemen. I urge you to read Bradley Thompson's book on the Revolutionary Mind. It is, uh, it is. an eye-opener and an important book, um, a defense of America, and. To end, to actually getting back around to an end on a positive note, you know, but for Ayn Rand, but for thinkers like Leonard Peikoff and uh, Brad Thompson, I don't think there'd be a defense of America's founding fathers as an Enlightenment country, and we have that today. There are people, courageous, intelligent people using their mind to defend America philosophically and historically as the amazingly benevolent revolution it was, the unprecedented revolution in human history that it was. Uh, And if we have a future, and if America is going to restore itself as the land where individuals can equally pursue their individual happiness, then it's going to be these ideas, and they're out there, and I'm gonna come back around full circle ladies and gentlemen, it's places like the Ayn Rand Center UK that are promoting ideas like this. And if you think that ideas are really the, the solution, if there is a hope to get Great Britain and America back on the track of individual liberty, back on the track of something like the free market, our only hope ladies and gentlemen are philosophical ideas and the work of men like Leonard Peikoff and Brad Thompson. So please do contribute to the Ayn Rand Center UK, we're doing our best to create a community of like-minded students who are studying these ideas and promoting these ideas. And I can think of nothing more important.
0: Well, in that regard, I want to give a shout out to Equal to Reality, who is in with a super chat and says, you go, James. In fact, he said earlier in the chat that your rant, your your, uh, impassioned plea there needs to be made into a video or or a show short of its own. I absolutely agree with that, and uh, I'm sure that's going to happen. You know, we, we have Independence Day coming up, July the 4th. Uh, a lot of us are going to be watching fireworks. Some folks will be setting off fireworks, and those fireworks are representative of the battles at the time that were going. The, our American thinkers were also fighters. They knew they were right, and they were willing to fight, many of them to lay down their lives of course, their, their fortunes, their sacred honor as well. For these ideas, when you see those fireworks, I, I hope that you, you get the same feeling in your chest that I do. The love of what they thought and what they did, both their thought and their action. And uh, I think it does each of us honor to understand that and to experience it, to have the value significance of it. Uh, Wes Stewart is in with a super chat too. Thank you very much for that, Wes. Very generous at $10. Uh, it, thank you. We appreciate the support. I, in, I'm already kind of tying it into the Independence Day holiday. Now, now, James, as much as I love that you've given us this topic to discuss, we have even more positivity. I don't know positivity sounds kind of weak. We've got even more values coming up. Today on the Daily Objective, the importance of ARCH. We've discussed aesthetics, we've discussed art, but today we're going to get it right from the, the expert. Linda cordaire is going to be on with Nicholas Krusek talking about the importance of art. Now, Linda and Quent cordaire the artist and writer, have supported the ARC UK. There's been a couple of sponsored shows recently, but here Linda is going to be on the show. That's going to be good. And that is just one hour away on the ARC UK. Mm-hmm. Also, I think tomorrow... There was some question with Ocon coming up. Was I going to do an episode of Life on Earth this week? I think I need to do an episode, and I think I need to call it The Boy on the Bicycle. And it'll be short, and it will be positive, but I've got a few things to say, and I want to hear from you all in the chat as well. So that's going to be good. Lots coming up in the ARC UK. You would think we would just take the week off with all that Ocon stuff coming up, and there may be lighter programming next week during the conference, but no, we do not stop working hard (laughs) because we love it. And, and these ideas inform our you'll, lives.
1: You'll see me on the Daily Objective next week, but we may not have a Friday, uh Wednesday next week because of Ocon. Uh, but in two weeks, you and I will be back to discuss the work of Leonard Peakoff more. I am certain, my friend. Uh, it, so for all those going to the International Objectivist Conference in Miami this year, please have a great time. It it's always an amazing thing, it, amazing not only intellectually and spiritually, but in terms of meeting like-minded people. Uh, yeah, people are people. There may be some people there that you don't, but they're going to be people there. And I can't go to an objectivist conference without making lifetime connections that are really important. So folks, have a great time at Ocon, even if we don't see you next week here on Peek Wednesday.
0: Excellent. James, thank you. Thank you everybody for watching, everybody for listening, especially you super chatters. That was pretty damn awesome. And catch yeah. today's TDO in just one hour. Nicholas Krusek and Linda, Linda Cordair and Quent Cordair were at the Ocon in 2019 in Cleveland with their pop-up art gallery. Go to Cordair.com to see what they offer. And we will see you in the chat in less than an hour. James, thank you. Thank Have you. Have a great afternoon.
1: Take care.